Good morning, beloved. It's good to see you all here. And especially those of you who are <clears throat> without power still, but still able to show up looking clean and refreshed to worship. Let me pray and we'll ask God's blessing on our time together. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the great privilege of being able to gather together as brothers and sisters in Christ, particularly on communion, Lord, where we get to fellowship with each other and fellowship with you. We ask your blessing on this time that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit to be able to receive, to understand, and be convicted by your word. As always, Lord, I pray that whatever nonsense has come from my own personal imagination, that your children would be discerning enough to disregard it, that whatever is from your pure lips, Lord, I pray that we would take to heart and be changed by it. Furthermore, Lord, we pray for those who aren't able to be with us today because of sickness, and I pray for those of us who are out working, and for the rest of the workers who are out trying to restore power and clean up our roads, that you would keep them safe and bless them, Lord, and give comfort to their spouses and children who are anxious about them. Again, be with us, we pray, Lord. We pray this in the name of King Jesus. Amen. If you've taken any of my classes over the years, you'll have heard me quote Hebrews a number of times, and I've said I really wanted to do Hebrews for a while. I wanted to do an Old Testament book before I started Hebrews, though, so I went back and we did Jonah. Um, but now we're starting this book, this book of Hebrews, which I'm personally very excited about and have been working on for quite a while. I wanted to do a good introduction to Hebrews. I started writing my introduction, and uh, it got so long where I had to say, that's, that's the message itself. I got to about 3,000 words and said, I need to bring this in for a landing. So that's why today it'll be part one. Uh, we'll be looking at Hebrews chapter one, verses one through three A. That means the first half of verse three. But we're gonna be getting more into the exposition next week, uh, and this morning we'll be um, more of an introduction, taking things from this passage, but also an overview of the book of Hebrews itself, and why you should care about it. Um, I've joked about this before. Actually, it wasn't a joke, it was serious, but when we were doing the uh, residency program at the church, we get to the part on preaching, and one of the instructors that we were looking at said that within 15 minutes of your sermon, people should be able to say, so what, and be able to answer that. So we actually wrote a card that we were going to hold up for Jacob or for me. It says, so what? If after 15 minutes, we don't have anything going on. But Hebrews is, is incredibly relevant to our time and to us. It's uh, in this, this introduction, even though we're going to be uh, covering more topic, um, it's still going to be very valuable. This is still God's word. And all of scripture is God-breathed and profitable for our instruction. So let me begin with our passage. Hebrews 1. 1 through 3a. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is the word of the Lord. In our modern English Bibles, uh, we have chapter and verse markers, which make it easy and helpful to find and memorize particular passages of Scripture. And you may or may not know this, but these weren't in the original writings. Uh, Luke wasn't sitting down and writing chapter 1 and verse 2 when he was writing that book. He just wrote it straight through. Uh, these 
markers weren't in the original manuscripts of the Bible, and they actually came at different times. Chapters came, then verses came. Chapters and verses together didn't show up in our Bibles until around the 1500s. So for around 1500 years, which is the majority of church history, there, there weren't chapter and verse markers in your Bibles. And these are helpful, you know, I, I've, they are useful. We obviously can are able to find passages quickly and uh, to memorize them. But sometimes it's really noticeable that they were stuck in the wrong spot. And you'll notice maybe there was a chapter break or a verse break where it, right in the middle of a sentence or, or a thought. Uh, so it's not, entirely, it's not entirely accurate, but again, it's not, it's not inspired by God. Uh, it's just something the editors put in to help us out. You can, incidentally, buy uh, modern reader's Bibles. Uh, I like to use these when I'm reading through the Bible. There's no verses, no chapters, no notes, straight text, so you don't get distracted by anything. But another editorial addition to our Bibles are these section headings that you see when you're reading it. Um, And these are little subject indicators, such as you see at the start of John 7, which says, Jesus, the Feast of Booths, or uh, Exodus 16, which is introduced by Bread of Heaven. And your Bibles may differ from mine, kind of depending on what translation or publisher you have, uh, because again, these are editorial editions which are uh, intended to make things easier for the reader. And like the chapter and verse editions, not all of these are entirely accurate or well-placed. You know, the main section, the main um, idea of a passage might not actually be what the editor had added in. I do need to point out, though, that the introductions for the Psalms were in the original, where it says, you know, according to the, to the, uh, the Gittith or something like that. Those are in the original, so those were important for us to read and to listen to in the Psalms. There's a subject heading at the start of Hebrews as well, which is an important, and I would even say an essential statement of theology for us to consider, which we will do so in a moment. As I've said, we're beginning a study of Hebrews today, And this is the book of the Bible, which I'm going to be teaching through from the pulpit uh, now that we've finished Jonah, so as as long as that takes. Hebrews is an astounding book. As I said before, I've wanted to go through it for several years now. It's astounding, and it takes its readers to immense heights of doctrine, and it explains the mysteries and the life of Jesus Christ and the purposes of God throughout all time. If you have a good understanding of Hebrews, the Old Testament, particularly the Pentateuch, just, it just opens up like a flower and you get to smell the fragrance and see the beauty of, of what it was really intended to be and what it was pointed to. Um, and I mean this when I say that you'll actually start reading Leviticus and Numbers and actually be interested and excited about it. As you understand more of the purpose of Leviticus and Numbers with Christ-colored lenses, so to speak. And studying this book almost makes you feel like Paul. You remember that part, uh, I believe it's in 2 Corinthians, where it says he knows a man who ascended to the third heaven, and he, was, he saw things which were too holy and too wonderful to repeat. But the difference with Hebrews is we have these visions of glory, we have these things which are actually revealed. It's, it's, a, it's a revelation to us. Things that you just could not grasp or understand or come to on your own, but have to be revealed to us by God the Holy Spirit. And there are so many occasions while reading Hebrews where you just have to stop and stare at the wall for a few minutes while your mind digests what the Holy Spirit has just told you. Um, Noah told me that uh, when he heard this verse I'm about to read, he actually had to pull the car over and stop thinking and think about it for a while because it just shocked him that this was in Scripture. But consider Hebrews 11:26. 26. 
It says he, this is referring to Moses, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. It's easy to blast through that when you're reading through Hebrews, but just hit the brakes for a minute and consider that Moses considered the reproach of Christ, that Moses knew about Christ, that Moses understood the promises of the Messiah, and he rejected the position of privilege and power of an Egyptian prince to follow Christ. The reason Moses said, I'm not going to stay as a royalty in Egypt was because he considered the reproach of Christ. That's stunning when you think about it, that he had these messianic understandings even before he wrote the first five books of the Bible, so much that he said, I'm going to go join my people. And this is just one example of many that we find in, um, in the book of Hebrews. And Lord willing, since that's Hebrews 11, we will get to that passage in time. But it's just one of many examples, amazing examples, that Hebrews brings us more understanding about Christ and more about God's will, God's purpose, and God's plan that God had even before he created the heavens and the earth. Like an architect has the plan of what the building's going to be like before they even break ground, God already knew everything that he was going to do. God already had a plan through all of this. And that includes the, uh, the Exodus and the things we read in the Old Testament. Hebrews is about Jesus, the supreme and final revelation. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of all the promises of God. Jesus is the king. Jesus is the prophet. Jesus is our priest. Jesus is the Christ. He is the son of God. He is the divine and eternal son of man from Daniel 7. Jesus is the creator of all things. He is the savior. He is the redeemer. The whole Bible is about Jesus. And Christ said this on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24 and in other places in the Gospels as well. Hebrews tells us how and why Jesus, in the words of chapter 7, 25, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Why is Jesus able to save us? Why is Jesus able to save us to the uttermost? The Hebrews calls its readers to set their eyes on Jesus and keep them fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who is described in this book as the founder, the author, the perfecter of our faith. And it calls us to lay aside every weight and every sin which clings so closely and to run with endurance the race which is set before us. That's 12.1. Hebrews calls us to have Paul's attitude, which he had in Philippians 3, 13-14, where Paul says, One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Or again, Philippians 1, 21 to 23. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. For that is far better. So what was Paul's life philosophy and guiding principle? And what is the main message of the book of Hebrews? And what is the main message of the entire Bible? As mentioned before, the chapters and the verse markers that were inserted into our um, Bibles by our editors are helpful, but they're not always smoothly placed. And the subject headings are also, they can be helpful or unhelpful, um, 
and that's, uh, they can maybe not even be related to the main points. But in my Bible, and perhaps yours too, there's a subject heading over Hebrews 1, verse 1. It says, the supremacy of God's Son. And this is completely accurate. And this is the answer to the three questions that I just asked. What was Paul's philosophy and guiding principle of his life? The supremacy of God's Son. What is the main message of the book of Hebrews? The supremacy of God's Son. And what is the main message of the entire Bible? The supremacy of God's Son. And since this is true, we should, it should instruct and inform our own life philosophies and our own reading of Hebrews and the, and the Bible as well. And that's exactly what the book of Hebrews calls us to do. John Piper said in his sermon, when you see and savor, savor the supremacy of Christ, and when you are satisfied with all that God is for you in Jesus, and when you trust Jesus, you clearly in your own soul are making much of Jesus, treasuring Jesus. And when that happens, you outwardly are set free from the slavery of sins, which people can start to see. And you are set free for the sacrifice of love, which people can see. So the root of your salvation glorifies God privately. And the fruit of your salvation glorifies God publicly. The life of seeking and savoring and loving the supremacy of God's Son is a life of God-glorifying freedom. And there's the irony with this, though, because people too often think that giving themselves all to Christ and living all for Christ causes them to miss the good things in life. It's, imagine if you're a, this is an unsanctified example, but imagine if you were at a casino or something and you only put a quarter of your chips in. Like, I'm going to bet this much on Christ, but the rest of it I'm going to hold back because I don't know if there's going to be something better out there for me. Well, Christ calls us to put everything in, all in for Christ, to live all for Christ. But we hold back because we think that if we put all in, if we go all in for Christ, that we're going to be missing on the good things in life, the pleasurable things of life. That the life of following Jesus is actually worse than, than living the sinful life of, of a lukewarm or nominal Christianity. And why, why do we so often believe that lie? Why are we so convinced by it, despite the things that we read about in Scripture? I mean, Jesus said in Matthew 16, 24 to 26, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? And Jesus is saying, this is, this, is the, this is the thing that the world never really grasps about Christianity. It's, you could almost call it the Christian paradox, but when we try to withhold from Christ, when we try to hold on to the things we love in life, the so-called good things that we can't get when we follow Christ, we're actually losing in the end. And he says that even if we were to gain the entire world, all of its wealth and pleasures, if we didn't have Christ and lost our souls, what would we have gained in the end? Now, this is what I think of so often when people you know, sell their souls to pursue wealth, or when I th we think of these false teachers who are making hundreds of millions of dollars um, lying to people about God. How could it possibly be worth it in the end? And it's worse than nothing. When you, get rid of, when you deny Christ, you end up with eternal death. We would have 
forsaken the most wonderful, the most glorious, the most soul-satisfying and pleasurable Savior for the ashes and the dust of a broken, fallen, and dying world. This is like that passage in Jeremiah where God says, you've committed two sins. You've turned away from the fountains of the water and you're digging in these broken cisterns. And imagine that, that example. You have a, a perfectly good cistern with refreshing water which nourishes your bodies and quenches your thirst. You say, nah, I don't want that. I want to eat this dust out of this broken cistern. That's, that's the, uh, the image it's given when we turn from God and turn to the things of, of this earth. You go to get a glass of water and you just dump a bunch of fire ash in your mouth. And that's literally what we do when we say, I want this over Christ. And this passage from Matthew tells us that it's those who deny themselves, who deny their carnal lusts, their greed, and their idolatry, and live all for Christ, who seek Him, who savor Him, who truly find meaning in real life, in this world, and in the next. The things that we do for Christ in this world carry on for eternity. The things that we matter, that we do matter forever. And this is a message that the first readers of Hebrews desperately needed to hear. Don't forget, as you read your Bibles, that there was an original audience for these letters that were written. With Jonah, I told you it was a, a rebellious Israel and Judah who were about to get wiped out, uh, and they weren't listening. And for uh, Hebrews, these were people who really needed to hear this kind of message. And, and we do as well, in our own age of extreme wealth and idolatry and, and sexual immorality. We live in an age when it's becoming harder and harder to live as faithful followers of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. We need to know that Christ is better, that Christ is supreme, that to seek Christ and to gain Christ is where life truly is. Hebrews was written in the first century A.D. to Christians who were experiencing the difficulties of Christian life. The original readers were Jews who had acknowledged that Jesus of Nazareth was their long-awaited Messiah and had followed him, just as the original apostles like Peter, John, and James had done as well. The Christ was promised to the Jewish people to come from the Jewish people and to be one of the Jewish people. And Jesus of Nazareth was and is the Messiah the people of Israel had been waiting for for their entire history. And I love this, this part of Scripture in Luke chapter 2 with Simeon. And he was, he was a, one of these Jewish religious leaders who actually recognized the Messiah had come. But do you remember that story in, in Luke chapter 2? You get to hear it uh, pretty much every Christmas. Simeon is this old man in the temple. He was told by the Holy Spirit, you're not going to die until you see the Messiah. Now consider that. That'd be amazing. He's been waiting for how long for the promise of the Messiah? And in comes this broke couple with a little baby, and the Holy Spirit says, that's the one, that's the Messiah. So he goes and he says, now I can die in peace, for I've seen the consolation of Israel, a light of revelation. That's what, so he, this is an example of one of these Jewish men who said, I've seen the Messiah, and this is him. And this was what Paul was arguing, that Jesus is the Christ. But there were others who rejected the Messiah, and they made life very hard for those who received the Messiah. In the Gospels, we see that the people who rejected the Messiah crucified him. Like, they didn't like him so much, they didn't just send him away. Like, we have to kill this guy. And in Acts, it, we, the people who made almost all of the trouble for Paul and the apostles were Jews who denied that Jesus was the Christ. They just could not 
um, could not accept the fact of this, of this pretender stepping into his messianic role. The Jewish Christians who received the letter of the Hebrews, the original readers, were beginning to feel this same kind of trouble and persecution as well. And following Christ, they were being confronted with what it really looked like to lose your life for Christ's sake and the gospel. This happens quite frequently in, in Muslim cultures. If you're not familiar with Islam, the greatest sin that you can commit as a Muslim is shirk. It's when you apostatize, when you leave the faith. So when Muslims become Christians in places like Pakistan or other um, extreme Muslim countries, you lose everything. You lose your family, you lose your job, you lose your place in the, in the community. You know, for an American, stepping into a church is really not a big shift. You're, you're not yet likely in our country to, uh, to experience a lot of hardship for it, um, some places more than others. But in other cultures, it's a, real, it's a real thing. When you say, I'm gonna follow Jesus, some people actually think it's their, their honor bound to murder you for that. That, that happens in, um, in a lot of these Muslim countries. And these early Jewish Christians were experiencing a lot of trouble as well. They were in the synagogues, they had their, their communities, they had their friends, and they probably lost that following Christ. They were probably kicked out of the synagogues, they probably lost friends and important relationships in following Jesus. But Jesus said to count the cost of following him. He said it would be a life of difficulty on earth to be a Christian. He said following him would bring tribulation and trouble into our lives. Uh, 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all, that's all, who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will face persecution. It's a very different message than the false prosperity gospel that you will hear a lot in our country and in the West today. The Bible promises you persecution if you want to follow Christ. These early Christians were experiencing this very thing. To put it another way, they would have lost their religious security and identity by being cast out of the synagogue. So their own religious people would have thrown them out. They would have lost beloved friends and family members by being shunned and excluded for their profession of faith. Um, and they would have probably lost financial security by being fired from jobs or denied business in their community. They would have made real sacrifice and experienced real change to follow the risen Lord Jesus Christ, just like people from other cultures do today. A real sacrifice to follow Christ. And so, what's the temptation? If you choose to follow Jesus, you think you hear this great news, and it is the most wonderful news in the world, but you follow it, and you lose for it. What's the temptation when things get hard? To go back. And many times in life, we're faced with the temptation to go back to throw in the towel and to give up because following Jesus is just too hard and the, make, the world makes it so easy to deny him instead of denying ourselves. You re realize that in most of these places with this persecution, all these Christians have to do to end it is to go back. In the early years in the Roman Empire, you can go get eaten by the lions in the Colosseum or you can deny Christ and go back, go back home, go back to your job. What are you gonna choose? Well, the lions got fat. They chose to die. They chose to die with Christ instead of to live for themselves. It's easier to live a compromised and given up faith than to finish the race. It's easier to do that. The Bible tells us it's easier to do that. That's why it's called our race. 
I don't, I don't know how many of you run or race. Or I, I did competitive running in high school. Racing is hard. Racing is painful. Racing means not quitting and laying down on the soft grass next to the course. You know, for a lot of the um, championship races that we ran in cross country in high school, they were on golf courses. It looked really nice, just the grass laying down, just stopping, like, why am I doing this? I don't have to do this. I can lay down and stop. Racing means burning lungs. It means burning legs, sweat, and efforts. It means not giving up when you hit a hill or a, mud, or a muddy span in the path. I remember so often in those races, I, I would start slowing down, and I think all I have to do is keep putting one foot in front of the other. That's all I need to do. Just don't stop. I can go slow, but don't stop moving your feet. And racing means getting back up if you slip and you fall. It means keeping the finish line in mind and placing those feet in front of the other until you cross that line. Because we're going there. I don't know if you've, been, if you've heard this yet, but you're all going to die. <laughs> you're all going there if our Lord doesn't come back first. That means the line's coming. Jesus said he's coming back. And you are going to die or Christ is coming back. These are two things that are quite certain to happen. There is a finish line in view. So however weary you're feeling right now, you can never think this is just going to go on forever. You know, Ecclesiastes says all these things too shall pass. And meanwhile, the world waits to welcome us back, back into our sin, back into our addiction with wide open arms. Because the world always gives you the second chance to come back into apostasy. Always gives you the chance to give up on the race and to tell yourself it's not really what you wanted anyway. You didn't want that prize. The world says it isn't worth it. The world says go home. The world says stop this farce and go back to bed. But why are you waking up on Sunday mornings? None of your friends do. I personally, I call this going back to Egypt. We have that desire to go back to Egypt. Remember the Exodus, how the Israelites were freed from terrible oppression, from slavery and from abuse, which included state-mandated murder of their baby boys. And when these people, these same liberated people, once they had been liberated and blessed with God's presence, with God's covenant, with God's law, when they got into the place of trial and temptation in the desert, what did they say? We were better off in Egypt. Things were so much better in Egypt. We should go back to Egypt. And that's the temptation for Christians today. We begin to tell ourselves that things were so much better before we chose to follow Christ and to trust Him, that it would be easier to go back, that life would be sweet and painless again if we returned to our own ways. Then we ask ourselves, what's the point of this race anyway? My friends and family think I'm a religious fanatic. My culture thinks I'm delusional, and they actually think I'm immoral for the views that I hold on marriage and sexuality. And, and what have I gained by following Christ? You're thinking on Sunday morning, I get to hang out with these people once a week. I love you guys. <laughs> but we ask those questions. What, what is the benefit from being a Christian? What is the benefit for the things that we gave up? You think of guys like Phil Kagey, if you've heard of him, probably the best guitar player of all time. If you haven't heard of him, it's because he decided to follow Christ instead of becoming a famous rock star. He denied, Christ, or denied the world and the, the fleeting pleasures of sin to follow Jesus, and there are innumerable stories about this, endless stories. They gave, they gave these things up. So we begin to think of the easy life by the Nile, 
of the leeks and onions and the pots of meat, the good things that we said no to. But if we feel this way, we're actually in denial of our true state in those times. We're forgetting what slavery was really like and looking back fondly at a past which never actually existed in the first place. Consider Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 3. Paul's writing to Christians. He says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. The passage says before we were Christians, we were dead in our sin, we were objects of God's wrath, we were enslaved to the passions and the desires of our sinful instincts, and we were following Satan wherever he led us. That's not better. That's much worse. And the Israelites forgot about the whips and the abuse, and they forgot about being ordered to throw their baby boys into the Nile. Nostalgia, at least in this manner, is usually foolish, and it's always selective on what it chooses to remember. For the Israelites and for us, the past was slavery. The past was death and bondage. We were slaves to sin and Satan. But we still hear the whisper in our ear, you should go back to Egypt. It costs too much to follow Christ. You can't be blamed. Nobody told you it was going to be this hard. You didn't expect it to. Maybe you don't actually have to deny Christ completely, but just not be so intense about it. You can live like the rest of the world and still be a Christian, right? And why not? Why trouble yourselves when you don't have to? Why don't you leave the discipleship? Why don't you leave the self-denial up to those religious fanatics who don't have any friends or real life apart from church? You mean, you're a cool person. You've got friends. You've got a lot to lose by following Christ. Why don't you just tone it down a little bit? So many do. Hebrews, this book, will address at length those who fall away from their profession, and it will give warnings to those who aren't paying attention to their Christian walk. And Lord willing, we'll have messages on those topics in the months to come. But what great theme, what crucial theme, we as followers of Christ in a hostile and alien land are given is what we've said several times already. The supremacy of God's Son we are shown in Hebrews that Christ is greater, that Christ is better, that Christ is more, that Christ is through whom and for whom all things were created. When Christ said the tribulation is going to come, he also said immediately after that, take heart, I've overcome the world. And what we're shown in the whole book of Hebrews is that you don't lose when you follow Christ. You gain. It gives us proper perspectives that our lives should be Christ-centered, that we should lay up treasures in heaven uh, instead of earthly treasures that are destroyed by moths or rust or mold or end up at Goodwill, the dump, or garage sales when you die. We've said this before, but there was that question when uh, Rockefeller died, and he was, he was a gajillionaire of his time. Somebody asked his accountant, how much money did Rockefeller leave behind? And the accountant said, all of it. He took nothing with it. And you consider the pyramids of the pharaohs. They were supposed to take all that stuff with them to the afterlife. But the reason we have these treasures in the pyramid is because it's all still there. They laid up treasures on earth and they took none of it with them. 
So this is just the this is just the wisdom of a good investment. Why would you invest everything in things which are temporary, which are ash, which are going to be burned up? Instead, invest in things which last forever. Hebrews opens the eyes of its readers and shows us that going back to slavery isn't a good choice. And in truth, we haven't lost anything by following Christ, but we've gained everything. Paul, St. Paul, the Apostle Paul, shortly before he was killed for his faith, in his last letter to his protege, Timothy, said this, The time of my departure has come. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also all who have loved his appearing. Paul knew what was at the end of the race course. He knew what he would get when he crossed the line. He knew when he crossed the finish line what was waiting for him. And it shaped his life. He led a Christ-centered, God-exalting life and endured all of that suffering and hardship because he knew one thing for certain, that Christ is better, that Christ is better, that Christ is worth it. And to receive a crown of righteousness from the very nail-scarred hands of our glorious King Jesus himself outweighed any and all of the temporary suffering and discomfort he might experience in this life. You see what he said? I will receive from the Lord this crown. 2 Corinthians 11, Paul says that he had experienced far more imprisonments with countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received from the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Why didn't he just say 39, by the way? Uh, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Now he faced and endured all of this for the sake of Jesus Christ. He experienced all of this discomfort and pain because he followed Jesus and he didn't turn back to the world that he had left, the world of comfort and privilege he had as a Pharisee. Paul had everything going for him. He had everything that you could want in his, his milieu. He was a respected religious leader. He was a student of the famous um, Rabbi Gamaliel. He had everything. But he chose, to, to, uh, he chose Christ, and he chose to endure all these things. And he was able to say in Philippians 3, whatever gain I had, this is referring to his privilege as a Pharisee, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as dung in order that I may be, gain Christ and be found in him. It wasn't even scales for Paul. Former life, Christ. Christ wins. It kind of reminds me of that, um, golly, where is it? I think it's in the Valley of Vision, that Puritan prayer book, which I recommend you grabbing and reading. But there's this one Puritan prayer which says, may I count a little holiness gained 
is overbalancing all my losses. If we gain Christ, if we gain holiness, then how can you measure that? And Paul understood that. And just as Hebrews tells us that Moses chose the reproach of Christ over all the pleasures of Egypt, Egypt was the wealthiest, most sophisticated nation in the world at that time. Moses had anything available to him in the world that he wanted. He said, Christ is better. I'm choosing the reproach of Christ over all of these things. Just as Paul counted all of his earthly gain as refuse for the dung heap compared with the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus is Lord. Paul, therefore, can say in 2 Corinthians 4, so we don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, as in every year you look in the mirror, it's a different person, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this, and this, is, this is what he calls his life that I just read, this light momentary affliction. This light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And this is what Hebrews teaches. That Christ is much greater, and so much better, and more satisfying than any of the transient and perishing things of the earth, that we're forced to ask ourselves why we would ever want to go back. Why would we trade the eternal weight of glory for the false promise of a few painless years on earth? as if we could really get that anyway. I mean, is, is that pain only for Christians? Does the rest of the world seem, um, seem happy and fulfilled? It's a mirage. Why would we trade the king of glory for the things that we've already flushed down the spiritual toilet? What amount of suffering is too great for the prize that we look forward to when King Jesus says, well done, good and faithful servant? In following Christ, we're letting go of garbage we can't keep and gaining what we can't lose. David Livingston was a British explorer and missionary in Africa during the 19th century. He devoted his life to missions and eventually died in Africa. He had, uh, he, I think the story is he bled out internally from dysentery related to malaria. Um, the story goes that they found him dead in prayer position over his cot. He was praying when he passed away at age 60. But he, like Paul, and like the book of Hebrews calls us to emulate, had a Christ-centered, God-exalting outlook on life. And like Paul, he endured suffering for it. He could have, he could have retired long before 60 and gone back, to, uh, gone back to the United Kingdom. But in 1857, Livingston gave a lecture to students at Cambridge University, and he said this, for my own part, I've never ceased to rejoice that God has appointed me to such an office. People talk about the sacrifice I've made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Is that a sacrifice which brings its own blessed reward in healthful activity, the consciousness of doing good, peace of mind, and a bright hope of glorious destiny hereafter? Away with the word in such a view and with such a thought. It is emphatically no sacrifice. Say rather it is a privilege Anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger now and then with the foregoing of the common conveniences and charities of this life may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink. But let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall be revealed in and for us. I never made a sacrifice. And we're invited to this life too. 
All of those who are in Christ are united to him and promised the crown of righteousness when we cross that line. That's what's waiting for us. If your steps are heavy right now, if your lungs are burning, if the grass is looking nice, imagine that crown waiting for you. That glory which shall be revealed, as David Livingston said. Hebrews calls on its readers to not look back, to not return to the dying world, to fix our eyes on Jesus and to run the race. To remember that although the race is hard, the crown of righteousness is waiting from him who bore a crown of thorns for our sake. And Jesus said that whoever endures to the end will be saved. And how is this kind of life even made possible for us? Because Jesus of Nazareth went to a cross in our place and endured the wrath of God for our sin, that God's anger at our sin, the justice that God said he would bring to our wickedness, was endured by our Savior on a cross so that by his spilt blood of the final and perfect sacrifice that the Holy Spirit, through the book of Hebrews, will teach us about, we are made clean. We're saved from the wrath of God, which is coming against the world because of the blood of Christ. Again, going back to Egypt, remember the first Passover, when God said, we want you to take a spotless lamb to kill this lamb, to take its blood and put it on your doorframe. And the destroying angel is going to go through all of the land of Egypt. And whoever doesn't have the blood on their door will have their firstborn killed. What saved the life of the firstborn? Spilt blood of the perfect lamb. So also, the spilt blood of the perfect lamb of the revelation protects us from the wrath of God and from the death. Our, in Egypt, the Israelites' firstborns were spared. God did not spare his own firstborn, but sacrificed him for our sake. And through Christ's substitutionary sacrifice, we now have peace through repentance and faith in Christ because Jesus inaugurated a new covenant in his own blood, a new covenant and spilt blood which we commemorate today through the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. We're going to distribute the elements now and we'll take in remembrance of Christ's body and blood which is given for us but if you're still COVID or germ-sensitive, we have the individually wrapped um, communion items uh, available. Just raise your hand, and John will hand those out. Uh, but I would like to invite the communion music team up and the men who will distribute the elements. <laughs> 